0: Hello everyone, my name is Laura and welcome to EduTech XP. Today's episode is special because recently we celebrated one year of this fantastic project. And to commemorate it, we have invited our very first guest one more time. Michelle is talking to Professor Dr. Armin Weinberger to discuss how the EduTech field has evolved since last year and what are some new challenges and opportunities for the future.
1: Today's guest is Professor Dr. Armin Weinberger, the head of the education technology department at University of Saarland.
2: Hello there. Nice to be back.
1: Yeah, we already had an interview with you before about your work and about your research, which was almost exactly one year ago, which is now also the first anniversary of the podcast.
2: Wow, what a, what a road you've uh, traveled. It's, it's quite amazing where I've been now.
1: Yes, and I mean one year passes quite fast, and we have many guests in the meantime. But we're happy to have you back now for the first anniversary.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to to be back.
1: So, as a recap of what happened in the last year since we talked the last time, what happened in the field of education and technology in the last in the last year?
2: Well, I mean, it was um, the second year of the pandemic, and people started to think what will come after the pandemic. And of course, people were thinking, how can we arrive at something like the best of both worlds? People were still happy to to meet again, which is really interesting, because before the pandemic, we asked students um, about their preferences of online learning. And many people actually were rather happy to have online learning in the mix and were feeling that it was rather convenient. But now if you ask people, um, they would be really wanting to to meet face to face again. So in practice, that is what happened, um, that, that people are happy to to be um, in the same room again. But I believe that if we're looking a little bit further, we uh, might actually come to a best of both worlds where people would be saying, okay, how can we design hybrid learning environments? How can we have a good mix of online and face-to-face learning? So that's happened on the practical side. Other than that, I think there's still a, a, a huge trend going on of learning analytics and multimodal analysis, uh, analysis of big data. And then, of course, the question, how can you use um, the, the analysis of, of learner data in runtime, so during the learning process, to feed that information back to the learners? I think there is still huge potential in there, and, and that will be a major and ongoing uh, trend in the future as well.
1: Uh, as a student myself, I can agree on the fact that we're all happy to be back in the classroom again to see each other to actually have classes together and we also had hybrid classes now this semester and in my opinion they work quite well until now.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a double edged sword, of course, because from a teaching perspective, it's unsure if you can do justice to both groups and be fair and you can treat them equally. And then that's an issue. And also a question whether the teachers would be then face to face, whereas the students after some time would remain online. Um, so I'm, I'm rather um, thinking along the lines of blended learning and having a mix of face to face and online phases. My big topic in terms of the organization or instructional design for practice is orchestration. And I think that the orchestration of different learning arrangements is, is really um, an interesting, let's say, way to go.
1: I see what you mean with um, being afraid to maybe leave one group behind, the other one that is able to come to class maybe. But you're especially an expert in the topic of CSCL. So could you tell us a bit more about what happened in this field specifically, the latest research that has been done and what is going on in CSCL right now?
2: Yeah, what's going on in CSCL? I mean, um, so on one hand, it has become more and more important because, of course, people were noticing that online learning can be a very isolating thing. And so people have been wondering, how can you organize social forms of learning online? And we actually, in the CSCL community, which I'm coordinating, we, we have actually organized a, a web series of practical scenarios of CSCL, which we have launched in response to the pandemic. And that is online and that you can find on the ISLS pages um, so so that's the one thing, the other thing is that um, typically science would be investigating things that come to pass in practice a couple of years later. So so indeed it is a question of what is now new in CSCL. Um, the things that uh, have now been used, um, are kind of things that have been investigated long time ago now that that goes for video conferences, that goes for structuring online learning and collaborative forms of online learning. So we are moving on in in investigating the social forms of learning towards um, well, multimodality, I already said that that is one big topic of Lena Lawrence that who is uh, basically um, having this huge Battery of data sources and dimensions and seeing how um, there is a mutual influence of how people are feeling and how aroused they are in the learning environment and how they are thinking about the task and how they are interacting with each other using multiple data sources like eye tracking and electrodermal activity, as well as discourse analysis. So to to have this broad range of data and to combine them to understand the learning processes better. So that is one thing that we are doing as well, and we're certainly not the only ones. Um, Another topic would be this notion of learning analytics in the sense of feeding back the information to, to automatically understand what is being said and then either through a conversational agent, a pedagogical agent um, that is uh, based on artificial intelligence, tutoring the collaborative scenario. That is something we're investigating with Birg Tierfelder, one of our team, and and also with awareness tools, uh, with uh, Miguel Rejon, who is is investigating uh, that. So basically... Both building on the automatic analysis of what people are saying, how how well they are moving um, forward in solving the task, and in how well they are interacting with each other. And so that's those are important topics. Another thing I'm very fascinated by is how we not only learn by interacting, but also how we can change our attitudes and criticize each other reciprocally and also soften our views. As you know, we are living in very divisive times. So people are fighting about vaccination, about climate change, about LGBTQ rights, about uh, you name it. Yeah, And, and it seems as we in the western democracies we are not able anymore to talk with each other but talking with each other is, is the very basis of our societies so this is very uh, concerning and and the question would be how can you not only learn but continue talking with each other and also changing your attitudes and there are very interesting or there is one very interesting approach which is called deep canvassing that applies multiple perspective based strategies. So basically, you would be getting perspectives, and that is a very personal and emotional perspective, rather than just learning about the facts, you would be hearing about individual fates of of people who have lived through a certain um, kind of oppression, so to speak, and also perspective taking. Strategies like you're being asked to take the perspective of the other. We have tried that out, and I'm completely blown away that there are actually really noticeable effects. These are, of course, still small effects because you can you can not change the attitude of one person believing one thing one thing very strongly to, to the exact opposite, but you can Significantly soften their attitude and move them towards multi-perspectivity, and that's that's a very interesting to see. So, so we're moving a little bit also beyond the mere learning effects to conceptual and attitudinal changes.
1: You also mentioned now um, online calls, for example, over Teams or Zoom, and that um, communication is key to um, computer-supported collaborative learning. I think every student that is listening right now knows the situation where you're in a breakout room and no one starts talking and no one wants to talk in this situation because you maybe don't know the peers that you're with in this call or you just don't feel comfortable talking online. Do you have any advice for those situations?
2: I mean, we are we are investigating. As a like a basic um, kind of instructional design approach of ours is scripting, yeah, and and we're investigating that. Uh, also, Paulo Santos is investigating also these perspective changes by scripting people through these uh, perspective getting approaches, and we are basically specifying, sequencing, and distributing roles and activities to then group members, and that goes to show then that people have hardly any process losses anymore. Everyone knows what to do and what is expected from him or her. And, and that is very interesting to see. And that facilitates then, then group learning tremendously. And of course, on the other hand, the situation that you're in a group and, you, and there is no like a start button or no, no, no one wanting to, to start the conversation, that's a good thing. That's when people are thinking, actually. Yeah. So so, so that's not not necessarily a bad thing. But I believe that there is also an emotional entanglement in this group learning. And we're about to investigate that. I think that there is a social norm, the feeling that you feel, this kind of shame of, of talking. You also feel that you're supposed to be talking. So this is kind of like a, an automatic commitment that you do want to have in a learning environment that what makes social learning environments so powerful because you're supposed to be talking you're talking with a peer so the threshold is actually a little bit lower than in a classroom where the threshold is higher to talk with an authority of a teacher and such so so there is a there is an emotional bind so to speak to actually contribute to the conversation and that's good and there's also an emotional bind not only to contribute to solving the task, but also to provide feedback to the peer. So -hmm. there are these two binds to contribute yourself and to give feedback to the peer. And that can create dynamics that are very positive. I am interested in what you're saying. I think your contribution is is valuable, Um, as well as negative dynamics and saying, oh, there was a negative feedback and I'm feeling less self-worth and I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little bit bad. Yeah? And it's really interesting to see how there are immediate um, endeavors to regulate these kind of little negative emotions um, and to recreate or reestablish um, a kind of rapport in the group. And to repair the negative feeling, so to speak, a typical uh, way to do this is humor. By the way, this this is a fantastic medicine for any kind of repairs of negative emotions. Uh, but clarifying misunderstandings as well immediately is is very it's very interesting to see how learners are are trying to get along and trying to contribute in these in these social groups. And that is an emotional dimension. And I mean, there is. It's, it's not a direct effect of emotion and motivation and learning, I think. Yeah, so you can be in a bad mood. You can also be demotivated and you can still learn. It's a bit counterintuitive, but as long as you're working on the task, you would still be seeing cognitive process and advances. But of course, if you think in the long run, and if you think about how people are Feeling is a value in itself. And you want people to also be feeling productive to sustain interest and to sustain engagement in a topic, then emotion motivation in the process becomes really important or interesting to to investigate by and of itself.
1: I see. So what you mentioned now, the scripting seems like a really good idea for me. To give everyone a role to like engage the conversation and to give everyone something to say already. And also you mentioned the fact of peer reviewing. We already had an episode about peer reviewing a few weeks ago. So for me, it feels feels like that this is also like a trend that is coming since some time. I'm not saying that it's super new, but I feel like it's getting more and more prominent right now.
2: that is exactly what I was talking about, that that, um, something that has been investigated like 10 or 20 years ago is is coming to practice. If there is any worth in it, then it will actually emerge also and be spread also in, in practice. And that's nice to see that. And with peer review, there are two aspects I think that are interesting. One is that peers can actually review each other. Yeah, so they, they are a bit underestimated maybe in their capacity to review and to assess what the others are doing. And they also themselves are kind of shy to, to say, how much quality does my, does my review have? But the research shows that they are very capable to, to assess the performance of the other uh, because they're in there as well. And they also have done it themselves. So they have an understanding of criteria on some level to, to be able to assess uh, the work of the other. And of course, this peer review process itself as a, as a technique of, of learning together is very powerful. I mean, I don't need to mention that peer review is the strategy um, that is kind of like the one fundament of science as well. Yeah? So to, to establish a scientific validity. Is uh, peer review is is kind of the basis in, but it if but I believe it works even better for learners than for scientists.
1: In the last episode that the, you were guessing, you also talked about how educational technology can be useful to guarantee access to education for disadvantaged groups. Are there new developments in this aspect?
2: Yeah, we've we've picked up that again with um, with the project partners we had back then. And we are now moving towards micro-credentialing so that it's not only to creating MOOCs and content for disadvantaged groups, but also to allow them to um, collect micro-credentials. So it doesn't always have to be like the big university, a certificate, a master's degree or something, but it could be also like very, very small certificates for smaller uh, competencies, if you like. uh? So that is one way to go. Other than that, the disadvantaged the, the idea of educational technology addressing disadvantaged groups or, or leveling the playing field, so sort to of speak, is, is still totally fascinating to me. But I'm also aware that there is some limitation to what educational technology can actually do. There is a, still a notion of divergence of people. Um, Prior knowledge is still the most important factor in learning outcomes. And and so basically, there is a a Matthew effect going on. Matthew from the Bible who said, who has, will be given. So those who already have benefit more from these complex educational technology environments uh, than those who, who actually lack knowledge. And so if you look back in, in history with all the different endeavors of, I don't know, uh, educational television, for instance, but also in more recent computer-based um, learning environments, um, this, this notion of leveling the playing field Never came to pass, really. Unfortunately, not on a large scale. Uh, I'm still working on it on multiple levels. I'm still fascinated by it to grant access to open uh, education, and we are indeed in a project that is called Open Teach, where we are working also to some extent on this to to. Um, um, basically uh, teach about open educational resources and an open educational practices. So so this is still uh, very relevant and interesting to us. But in terms of just throwing in some kind of technology and just making it accessible is not a guarantee for actually also addressing disadvantaged groups. So there needs to be more effort. More effort needs to be put in in this uh, notion of creating justice and equity with
1: education technology. Right now, you're also directing a class on intercultural learning, in which we are, by the way, very excited to participate. How is intercultural learning relevant to the field of educational technology?
2: That's, that's a good question and a fair question. I mean, to be honest, I've, uh, this is a a pet topic of mine. I'm just interested in it. And that's why I'm doing it. Um, another practical reason is that, that, The Edutech program at Saarland University is very international, as you know. So we have people from almost all continents, except Antarctica, I believe. Um, So so there is also a need to be intercultural uh, or sensitive interculturally. Uh, But yeah, there is also a more specific reason why that is part of the Edutech program. And that is that one notion of Edutech is that You're creating maybe powerful software or powerful learning environment, and you would then scale it up and apply it across the world. And um, the notion that we're trying to address in this intercultural learning seminar is that you might need to be interculturally sensitive here as well and to design learning environments for specific cultures as well. Yeah, that's the idea. But it's also a bit part of acquiring a sensibility always towards m- multiple or multiliteracies, if you like. Yeah? So that was also a topic uh, of a recent topic of the podcast. So it also ties uh, into that. And yeah, but the other reasons are really our very own interests, you know. <laughs>
1: You mentioned that it is important when designing learning material or educational technology in general that it's important to maybe also design for specific cultures. When designing for specific cultures, what is the important part about that?
2: Well, I'm I'm now focused on, of course, collaborative scenarios, yeah, computer-supported collaborative scenarios. And as I said before, there is a bit of a notion of an emotional binds or entanglements, really. So it's much about losing or preserving face, yeah? uh, whether or how shameful it is really to engage in a discussion or basically also how acceptable it is to think about open-ended complex topics that is not self-evident, that is the same across different cultures. Also, things like thinking critically and being you know and and that being as an accepted practice to think critically about things differs or varies across uh, cultures but this is a kind of like a basis of many of the learning environments that i am interested in so i'm not talking about typical Yeah, scenarios like MOOCs or or more like computer-based teaching or learning of old, where you are being spoon-fed little pieces of information. I'm sure that works across cultures, but also better for some cultures than others. Um, but once you begin to engage learners in specific activities, um, when when you're particularly interested in engagement, and in learner agency, there is a very strong influence of culture of how people understand this in the first place and what they would be allowed to. Do and think freely in this context. So there are differences there of what authority also means in across different cultures. And authority is of course also an, an important issue or aspect of any learning scenario.
1: Do you think that also a certain risk that respect is a um, a part of different cultures or that respect can be against the fellow students or teachers is almost the same in all the in different cultures.
2: Yeah, that's that's of course also a, um, uh, that also varies quite a bit. Yeah, so the question of the extent to which you are allowed to criticize authority yeah? mm-hmm. or, or question authority that varies as well. Yes, and that's yeah, that's exactly what needs to be kept in mind in when designing uh, environments.
1: And when we're only talking about, let's say, apps on the phone, desktop, on any device, what would there be the important part where there's no teacher when it's self-regulated learning? Is there, what is there the important part when looking at different cultures? What do you have to keep in mind?
2: Well, I would think that... Um then whether learners would understand something to be a learning environment in the first place, when they're really meant to employ their own strategies and, and freely explore a field and, and they are having huge degrees of freedom, then this is a question of prior knowledge for sure, but also um, the strategies that are available to them and also then the, the set of values that they come with. And that is also different across cultures. I'm basically, uh, when investigating CSEL, we are applying this notion of scripts, right, as an external aid to engage in specific strategies. And very soon after doing that, we noticed that it's not only the external scripts that um, take effect, but also internal scripts, the strategies that learners have at their disposal. And if you like, I'm on the hunt, not only for external scripts, but also for internal scripts. So the intercultural or cross-cultural scenario is very interesting to me because I can observe different internal scripts at play. So for instance, we once investigated um, as a culture comparison study we investigated and compared german students collaborating with each other and finnish students collaborating with each other and it was really fascinating to see how they responded to a script that asked to ask them to critically peer review each other's contributions so to be critical with one another and we found that the german students even without the script were already very, very critical with each other. And when you were giving them a script, they were kind of taking it to new extremes and being super critical with each other. Whereas the Finnish without a script were hardly critical. And when we gave them a script, so we, we told them to please be critical with each other. You're supposed to be critical with each other. They arrived at, at levels of criticism as German learners without the script. Yeah? So, so this is a strong difference that you could really observe, and there was no other reason but culture to attribute it to. So, that's that's quite astonishing, yeah? and to have that in mind, that culture, especially for these. Very, uh, let's say, social strategies, and also in scenarios in which culture comes to bear, in particular, namely in social scenarios, this plays actually quite a major role.
1: I see. So it's also like a big part in the communication style and how we learn together collaboratively. But it's developing to be the whole world develops to be more and more connected with each other. So more cultures are interfering with each other, but not only our communication is evolving, but also the technology behind that is evolving. So my question now would be, what do you imagine the future of educational technology to look like in, let's say 10 to 20 years?
2: Yeah, I would think that the, things that we are investigating now will be uh, spread out to a larger degree. So that is when we're talking now about learning analytics to be an important part of or important focus in research, then in 10, 20 years, learning analytics would be coming to a certain level of ripeness or a a, a market readiness that, that would be astonishing, I think. So any of the activities, any, any of the processes that, that happen during learning would be automatically investigated or analyzed and mirrored back to the students to guide them further or to enhance their self-regulation. That, I think, is one big thing yeah, on multiple modalities, really. Other things I could imagine would be, I don't know, virtual reality being not only like a gimmick at this time or nauseating, but really uh, being applied on a larger scale. And then I would hope that the research that is being done now would have showed the way in, in creating effective scenarios of learning that is maybe another another thing that, that would be happening in 10 or maybe 10, 20 years, I, would, I think that then, then the, the world would have changed uh, quite a bit. So it's difficult, of course, to make these predictions, but that's how I would extrapolate this.
1: Um. Can you think of any specific examples how education could be used in virtual reality or better saying how virtual reality can be used to improve education?
2: Yeah, that's a very interesting question because in any kind of education technology, if you think about it, and we're, I mean, now we're talking about of course technology enhanced learning and kind of like computer support and such, there's always the question, why would we need the computer for that? couldn't you also do this without the computer? And in many scenarios, you would be saying, yes, actually, we could do without the computer. The computer makes it more feasible and more practical and more obvious. But if we would like to, to be like, say, if we would be marooned on an island and we needed to you know, communicate with each other in, in a structured way, we could also design it like so with a pen and paper or with coconuts. So So it doesn't necessarily need to be digital. And so the question is very real for any kind of educational technology. But here, I would think that, um, well, we would be able to, to create um, scenarios of simulation, of course, that are very true and very realistic in terms of also movement, maybe bringing embodied uh, learning to a new level yeah, where we would learn also through bodily movements or bodily movements would play a major role. I think then the idea of augmentation, so not only virtual reality, but also augmented reality would be um, most central in a sense. So, for instance, if you could visualize things that are otherwise invisible, that would be a true enhancement of um, reality or of any kind of other regular simulation that is true for, I don't know, electricity, or uh, warmth of of, uh, physical uh, materials and for learners then to understand how electricity flows or how electricity works or how materials are conducting heat and so on and so forth. But also, again, for my specific focus, it would be interesting then to see the invisible of social interactions. And then it would tie back to learning analytics, analyzing qualities of social interaction in in real time, and then displaying those qualities in your respective classes. And um, yeah, I I would think that that these are scenarios making the invisible visible. And also, of course, things like role-playing, taking on different roles in such a, yeah, virtual theater play for learning, um, I think there's, that's where the potential of these technologies are. Yeah.
1: One trend right now is also um, artificial intelligence. What is your opinion on the global topic of artificial intelligence, also then used for education?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a bit misnamed, I'm afraid. It's not so intelligent, but of course, it's very powerful. And Anything I've just said yeah, with this, especially with this learning analytics, of course, is building on artificial intelligence. Huh? So that's a huge part of it. And it's quite fascinating to see how patterns can be recognized and how the human mind can be really enhanced and facilitated. And it's going to be a huge topic to and also a philosophical question even. What is the human computer system? And how can we place the human or the learner in such a system in a way that it facilitates learning and it doesn't reduce the cognitive capacities? So if you're thinking about the effect navigation systems have on your mental map of where you are, there is clear evidence that that it reduces your orientation, actually, because, of course, the navigation system does what it is designed to do, that is to take over all your navigation needs, so you don't need to think about it. So that is cool, of course, but the question then becomes, if the machine takes over cognitive tasks, what is then happening to the human mind? Are we then being uh, over by these intelligent machines? And so there's a real challenge to design scenarios in which the learner would be guided to engage with the tools available to him, with the art or her, to, with the artificial intelligence to higher level tasks. Mm-hmm. If that is not happening, then it would really be leading to a dumbing down of the learners rather than an enhancement of the intelligence or of the cognitive uh, capacities of the of the learners and i'm looking forward to see that we need we need to be optimistic in in the sense that that then we needed to design for exactly that happening uh, we are already living in such a world in which machines that can take over cognitive tasks Um, uh, are at our disposal and we're using them on a large scale. So it is already a current challenge and this challenge will be even more pronounced. So if you're using a navigation system and you don't want to have this effect or you even want to come to higher levels of understanding of where you are in the world, then that would mean that you would also have to switch on your mind and say, okay, where am I going? Um, what is the plan laid out for me? What are the places around where I'm going rather than to just put in the address and then go? And so you would be basically need to make yourself aware as well and active and be an active component in this human machine system that you're that you're constructing.
1: I see. so there are so many ifs and maybe maybe not. And as a final question to finish up this interview, I would like to know from you if you have any advice for all those people that are now listening or people that are just starting to get interested in the field of educational technology.
2: There are two, two different temporal dimensions here. One thing is the human being that is not changing so much. So learning is still as it was 2000 years ago or even longer before. And, and so that stays relatively constant. And that is, however, so complex that we're still catching up with understanding it perfectly. And at the same time, learning is now changing in a more profound way through these new technologies and also through, especially through uh, artificial intelligence approaches. So to match that is quite fascinating. And, and I would simply advise to to think about trying to really understand the the mechanisms of learning, trying to understand the capacity of technology and to think along those lines um, to analyze it, but then also to be creative in what learning could be. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be able to base our learning environments on theories and understand it by scientific theories, but that does not need to prevent us from being creative about what learning environment to design. So, you know, you don't need to deduct everything from theory when designing. You just need to tie it back to theory after you have come up with a great idea and then trying to understand. So it's still also a creative process, which I enjoy very much. Play around.
1: Thank you very much for your opinion on all those different topics we covered today and also for the update on what happened in the last year since we launched the podcast, since you've been our guest the last time.
2: It was a pleasure. So thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for coming back.
0: Petrotech is a broad and complex field full of research opportunities like CSEL, awareness tools conversational agents, interculturality, and augmented reality or AI, among others. These new areas might be transforming the way we see education and, fortunately, we have the chance to discuss and reflect on them here. After a year, we're excited to see how this project has grown and has successfully engaged in so many conversations about the tech from so many different perspectives. Remember that you can follow the conversation about this and other topics on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again, Armin and Michelle, and thanks to you, dear audience, for joining us. Until the next time in Edutech XP.